What you are is not the whole story about who you are. Māori or Pākehā, male or female, shared values, including freedom of speech and justice for all, have always been the glue that holds democracies together. Before woke became a political slogan, Professor Yasha Monk warned about threats to democracy from dangerous polarisation fed by identity politics. His criticisms are usually aimed at the right, but he's increasingly concerned about some bad ideas created with good intentions by people mostly on the left that he says lock in victim mentality and deny that any two groups can truly understand each other. His new book offers a new way to talk about and tackle corrosive identity politics. It's called The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And Professor Yashamunk joins me now. Hi there. Hi. I mentioned that word woke. That's a bit of a red flag when someone starts complaining about things being too woke. <laughs> you prefer a different term. What do you prefer to use and, and, and why do you think it's better? Well, one of the funny things about this conversation is that usually when there's controversial political ideologies, we still have terms we can agree on for what to call them. You know, some of the listeners might think of them as themselves as socialists. Many might dislike the ideology of socialism, but all of them can agree to refer to it by the name of socialism. The new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation that have become so influential in parts of the left and increasingly in the mainstream in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, and in New Zealand don't have a term uh, that we can all agree on. Uh, you know, originally, activists described themselves proudly as woke. Today, when you talk about woke this and woke that, you, you sound a little bit like an old man shouting <laughs> at the clouds. Um, and so I prefer to call it the identity synthesis because these ideas are fundamentally about the role that uh, identity categories like race, gender, and sexual orientation uh, do and should play in society. And I think that they are a synthesis of different intellectual influences, including postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. Yeah, the, the problem is if you if you can't agree on the term, and if a, a term has a pejorative aspect like woke does, then you don't even get started having a conversation, right? And um, so, so you're proposing an alternative in which we can somehow talk about this uh, nebulous set of ideas that that forms a lot of progressive thinking in 2023. That's right. And look, um, I, I don't ultimately care what people call it, but as you're saying, we need some term for a basis of a serious conversation. And what I try to do in my new book and the identity trap is to actually trace where these ideas come from, how they came to be so influential on mainstream institutions, to critique their application to many areas of our political and cultural life, to the rejection of free speech as supposedly just a conservative value, to the claim that uh, it's hard for me to understand you if you stand at a different intersection of identities compared to me, to the general concern we now have about the ways in which members of different cultural group groups might influence each other. And then finally, I try to uh, formulate a more principled uh, liberal response to these ideas, pointing out how we can take discrimination that undoubtedly persists in our society seriously without throwing the baby out with a bathwater, without giving up on the vision of a society 
in which we come to emphasize what we have in common rather than what divides us. I'm speaking with Professor Yasha Monk. His book is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. And if you've just tuned in um, and you're trying to work out where, where Yasha fits in, you are for equality and you're for what most people would regard as left-leaning uh, principles. However, you feel that the approach of some aspects of the left at the moment are counterproductive, are not going to achieve the sorts of things that it aspires to achieve. And your book begins with a story about a primary school where children were separated by race in the name of fighting racism. What happens in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia? Yeah, so that was one of the moments I was really touched in researching this book. I spoke to a, a woman called Carla Posey, an African-American educator in the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, and, uh, you know, she asked her school whether... Uh, she could suggest a classroom for her youngest daughter. Um, and the principal said, sure, of course, send me along the name of a teacher you prefer. Uh, but once Kyla did so, um, the principal changed her tune and sort of uh, kept demurring and saying, well, you know, perhaps there's an another teacher you might prefer. And when Kyla finally said, what, what on earth is going on here? The principal effectively told her, look, uh, that's not the black class. Um, this sounds like a story of uh, straight up racial discrimination in the American South, and there have been many of those in history, undoubtedly. Um, uh, but it, it's a little bit different when you learn that the principal was herself a Black woman and somebody who was deeply influenced by uh, new supposedly progressive ideas in American education, that we must encourage children to see themselves as racial beings that uh, most of a peer group should or must be of the same racial group for them to have a healthy development. Um, we now have many schools in the United States, including some of the most uh, influential elite private schools in New York City, in Washington, D.C., in Los Angeles, uh, that uh, uh, have teachers walk into third grade, second grade, first grade classrooms and separate kids out by race, saying that African-Americans are going to go in one classroom and Latinos into another classroom and Asian Americans into a third classroom and white kids into a fourth classroom. Um, and the idea for the white kids is that they should own their whiteness, own their European heritage in a way that would turn them into great uh, principled anti-racist activists. But everything that we know from history and from social science, everything we understand about how human beings once they have formed a particular group, tend to fight for its interests over those of perceived outgroups, makes me think that these kind of pedagogical practices are more likely to teach these kids to be racist, to be white supremacists, to fight for the interests of whites in ways that are not going to help us build more peaceful, tolerant, and prosperous societies. What is the identity trap, Yasha? Well, this is part of the trap that... Um, these practices which are uh, driven by the best of intentions uh, encourage the kind of zero-sum conflict between different groups that will actually lead to a lot more discord. Uh, we are seeing the same uh, in terms of public policy as well. One of the most striking examples was at the height of the COVID pandemic when we finally got those life-serving vaccines. Virtually every country in the world distributed them by uh, descending order of age because elderly people were so much more susceptible 
to uh, severe outcomes from the disease. But in the United States, ACIP, the key advisory committee to the Centers of Disease Control, said that this would be inappropriate because the uh, elderly Americans are uh, disproportionately white. And so they ended up making a much broader category of essential workers eligible first, even though the CDC's own model suggested that this would lead to the death of more Americans. And in fact, I suspect that it led to the death of more non-white Americans as well, because if you give a vaccine to two 25-year-old Latino Uber drivers rather than one 80-year-old Latino retiree, more Latinos are going to die. Um, so this is another way in which it's a trap. It leads us to public policies that needlessly increase the death toll in something like a, a life and death situation, the COVID pandemic. And finally, I worry that it will hamper our fight against the kinds of right-wing populists about whom I've warned in much of my work and remain very worried today. Uh, you know, in the United States, uh, it became very hard to argue back against these ideas after 2016 when uh, Donald Trump won the presidential election and any uh, criticism of left-wing ideas came to be perceived as a way of running interference for Donald Trump, of secretly mm -hmm. helping him. But today, one of the reasons why Donald Trump is running head-to-head -head with Joe Biden in uh, polls for 2024 for the presidential elections we have coming up next year uh, is that these ideas have now ha come to have so much of a hold over mainstream institutions. Um, in fact, uh, analyses show that a key voting block for Republicans now, about 10% of the people who vote for the party, are disproportionately young, disproportionately non-white, disproportionately progressive on social issues, but so worried about the hold of what we call wokeness in uh, the American mainstream that they're uh, uh, set to vote for him. So even though uh, what I call the identity synthesis and far-right populism seem to be diametrically opposed to each other in practical and political terms one is the yin to the other's yang interesting eh? and um probably a good time to talk about structural racism or systemic racism this idea been pretty reputable groups here in new zealand that have had a look at our health system and determined that it is structurally racist that um, the health outcomes of here our indigenous Maori people are worse in that health system, even when you account for things like disparity, uh, disparities in socioeconomic class. And so we too in New Zealand uh, have had policies uh, that prioritise Maori patients. Um, the idea seems to be that by giving them an advantage in access to the health system that perhaps you make up for some of those structural inequalities, some of those worse outcomes. It's hard to argue with that, Yasha. Well, it depends on uh, how those kinds of policies are implemented. Um, and, uh, you know, I've never been to New Zealand. I haven't had the pleasure of that. And so I'm conscious that I don't fully understand uh, the historical and, 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 and sociopolitical context in, in, in your country. Uh, but generally speaking, I distinguish between uh, what one British Nigerian writer has called race blindness and racism blindness, which is to say that we obviously should not close our eyes to the persistence of serious forms of racism. Now, some of that racism uh, may be 
uh, you know, straightforwardly uh, negative or bigoted views about other groups, but some of it, uh, as you implied by the use of the term structural, may be more subtle. It may be that uh, the problem is not so much people having terrible views about other groups, but uh, these groups continuing to suffer from historical disadvantage um, or uh, simply having less access to things like uh, healthcare. And we certainly uh, should uh, uh, study those forms of racism very carefully and adopt policies which ensure that people are actually treated as equals, that they have the same opportunities to see a doctor, that it isn't harder for them to get the medical care they need. Um, whether or not it is sensible to make how the state treats people explicitly depend on the kind of group of which they are a part is, I think, a much more complicated question, in part because these kind of metrics often end up being very crude. In the United States, for example, the state of Vermont ended up giving non-white Americans uh, priority to the vaccine uh, a number of weeks before uh, white Americans. And this also held for Asian Americans who actually had lower uh, death tolls uh, from the disease throughout the pandemic. Uh, so these metrics often end up being incredibly crude. And when you make uh, who receives uh, medical care explicitly depend on the kind of group of which they are a part, you are also encouraging a form of political competition, which nearly by definition might very well end badly for members of genuinely disadvantaged or marginalized groups. The idea that in the long run, our polities, our states, our societies are going to treat members of uh, small historically um, disadvantaged groups better if uh, the state is empowered to take your skin color or your origin into account when it decides who gets what treatment is, I think, uh, very questionable. And then, of course, there is the potential of political backlash. Again, I want to speak carefully here since I don't know New Zealand very well, but my understanding is that some of those policies have been adopted in recent years, and you have now had a significant political swing to the right. Yes, as significant as it gets in New Zealand. I think our politics are probably more centrist than other Western democracies. Uh, there's so much that I wanted to cover with you, Yasha. We're, um, we're short on time. Um, but perhaps I'll just finish with this idea, the idea that we can't understand each other, that different groups in society can't understand each other, basically because we don't share the same experiences and therefore we don't can't share the same perspective. Can I finish by asking you, is that dangerous for democracy in your view? Um, I, I think it is dangerous because it makes it much harder for us to sustain the kind of solidarity we need to uh, to have societies in which we treat each other well and fairly. So this idea has a, a kernel of an intuition, uh, which is plausible, which is that, of course, to give one example, I don't fully know what it feels like for some of my female friends to uh, want to take uh, the subway uh, or the bus at night uh, and to feel uh, that they might be sexually harassed. I, I'm never going to exactly know what it feels like to have that experience. And so some people have said, uh, what we should do is to recognize that we can't understand each other and simply promise to defer uh, judgment to each other. But what it is to be a good 
a political ally is to simply defer to the demands of uh, more oppressed groups. Um, but this, I think, is wrong both on philosophical and on political terms. It's wrong philosophically because even if I can't fully walk in your shoes, I can understand the politically salient aspects of that experience. I can understand that uh, my female friend's mobility is more restricted than mine, and that that is something that's unfair, that I want to live in the kind of society in which they need to be no more worried about getting home at night than I am. And it is wrong politically, because most people simply are not willing to defer the judgment in that kind of way. And even if they pretend to, they probably uh, appoint spokespeople for the groups to which they supposedly defer, with whom they already agree. Because after all, there is no such thing as unanimity among women, unanimity among this ethnic group, unanimity among that religious group. And so I think a much more fruitful way of thinking about the world is to say that, uh, you know, when somebody comes to me and says, because of a group of which I'm a part, I have these experiences of discrimination, I should take that very seriously. I should listen to them with an open mind. I should stop myself from being dismissive by saying, I've never experienced that. I'm sure they're exaggerating. No, I should uh, really take what they're saying seriously. But then I should assess it. I should figure out whether I think that the way they're putting it is right, whether they have described something about the world that is true. And if it is, then I should fight against those injustices on my own terms because they violate my idea of the kind of society in which I want to live. And that, I think, allows us to build uh, much more meaningful and much more sustainable forms of solidarity. The book is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. You'll have got the impression uh, we've barely scratched the surface with Professor Yasha Munk, but thank you for these ideas and really lovely to have you on the radio today. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this.